welcome to the Throws Genius Podcast. We are coming to you today from Cleveland, Ohio, and as always, I am your host, Coach K. Today, I'm going to discuss what to expect from the throwing events at a track meet, so let's get started. Hey everybody, Coach Kistner here, otherwise known as Coach K. Welcome back for episode two of the Throws Genius Podcast. Thanks for checking us out again. I'll have another episode up in a couple of weeks, so be sure to check back. Feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or subscribe on Stitcher or iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. If you just search for at Throws Genius, you should be sure to find us. You can find links to all our social media accounts in the show notes, which can be found on throwsgenius.com slash podcast. All right, let's get into it. Some of the topics that I want to go over on this episode related to track meets for uh, throwers. I'm going to talk about meet entries, weigh-ins or implement certification, checking in at the meet, how flights are organized, warm-ups, the number of throws that you get, finals, tiebreakers, protests, etiquette and safety, and then some rules of the sport that people might not know about or about which there might be some confusion. So let's start out with the basics, um, being able to enter in a meet. If you are a scholastic, collegiate, or club athlete, generally the coaches of your team will take care of meet entries. If you are an unattached athlete, meaning you are not officially on a team, then you're going to have to find meets and enter them on your own. And luckily, this has become a lot easier with the advent of the internet. If you're a high school athlete looking for meets in the summer, or you're out of college or master's athlete, some websites that you can use are directathletics.com. Once you create an account on there, you can enter meets that you can find there. You can search for them by location and date, etc. Um, similarly, on usatf.org, you can find USATF sanctioned meets or unsanctioned meets as well, including some national championships and stuff like that. And as far as meet entry, if you ever have any kind of confusion, you should be able to identify the meet organizer either on the website for the organizing institution or through Direct Athletics or USATF.org. Um, contact the meet organizer either by email or phone on the website or usually through the meet information you can find out specifics for unattached athletes such as where to pick up your envelope or packet or your bib number if they're using those for the meet where to pay and if payment is being processed the day of the meet or if you are going to have to pay online in advance those are some important things to know as far as meet entries so moving on to weigh-ins or implement certification it's important that we are all on an even playing field, so to speak. So it's important that our implements are legal and meeting certain requirements so that nobody gets an unfair advantage. Weigh-ins or, or at bigger meets, it, re- it really should be considered implement certification um, because there's more things than just making sure that an implement meets weight. For meets that are maybe lower stakes, the officials may only just weigh an implement and make sure that it weighs the, at least the minimum at more highly organized and bigger stakes meets like national championships or just championships in, in general, um, you're going to find that 
officials are going to make sure that no competitor is going to have an unfair advantage because of their implement and that the implements are safe. So they're going to make sure that the diameter of the implements is correct, that the wire length is correct, that there are no defects in the surface of the implement. That I've learned from running meets that certifying a javelin is one of the most complicated things. You have to check diameter and length of all different areas of the javelin and make sure not just that it balances in the correct place, but there's just all kinds of crazy things for jabs. So I would say be considerate of the people that are running your meet. And if you can get your implement to implement certification on the early end of the available window, that would be fantastic. Usually the time and location is listed in the meet notes or the info sheet, which can usually be found on the website for the host organization or school. My recommendation is that if you have two shots, for example, to bring both of them with you, you know, maybe leave one in the car, but bring extra implements or equipment or tools, especially indoors for the weight, just because uh, you never know when one of your implements might not make weight. I mean, maybe you've been using it and it's been weighing in and been certified, but maybe you got a ding in it and maybe you're going to show up at a meet and they're going to be a little more strict about the qualities they're looking for. And then you don't want to be caught unawares without an implement to use. Some meets, especially some USATF sanctioned meets and larger championship meets will provide implements. So that's something that you can look out for. I know for the Masters Throws Championships that's coming up in August of this year, they provide community implements for all the different age groups. So there's their implements available for people to throw that don't have them. And also with some governing bodies, uh, any implement that gets weighed in can be used by any competitor so long as you ask. So that's something that you want to familiarize yourself with the rules that apply to the meet that you're in, whether they're the high school rules, USATF or NCAA rules. Make sure you familiarize yourself with the, the rule book as far as implements are concerned, because sometimes people can't afford to get an implement like a hammer or a weight that meets the qualifications to be certified. And so, you know, we, you won't be at a disadvantage if you can borrow someone else's implement or if you get caught off guard by all the implements you bring don't make weight, for example you can borrow someone else's. So moving on to check-ins. So basically that is really simple. Usually check-in takes place about 30 minutes before an event, although you're going to want to check the meet info for guidelines for how early to check in. And all that that means is that you find the official that's got a clipboard with the sheets that have the flights listed on them. You can usually check what flight you're in in advance on the website, they'll often have the flight sheets or they are emailed to coaches 24 hours in advance. As an unattached athlete, you may receive that information via email as well. So what is a flight? So in the running events, you're probably familiar that people are broken up into heats. In the throwing events and in the horizontal jumps, they're called flights. And the way that they're organized is that typically the entries are sorted based on the marks that you put down as your seed mark listed from the shortest to the longest distances. Um, And if you enter with no mark, it counts as a zero. So they would be right at the beginning. They break up the total number of athletes into groups ranging from maybe as few as eight and to as many as 12. I've seen sometimes as high as 15 So once all of the throwers are broken up into groups of flights, then the throwers are usually randomized within the flight. So generally speaking, everyone in flight one has lower marks than everyone in flight two, but the first thrower does not necessarily have a shorter mark than the second thrower. 
And I have seen something in a couple meets when I was throwing for Ashland back in 2012, this thing called hot flighting, where they would take the two best flights and they would throw first and then finals would take place and then the rest of the throwers would get to get their throws. And if someone from the flights that went after finals got a mark that was better than top nine, then they would get to take an additional three throws. The benefit of hot flighting is that the best throwers that are competing get to get their throws first and it's easier for them to predict when to warm up and be ready to throw. And really, ideally, a meet should be run to benefit the most talented athletes. And so that's one way to do that. Um, So let's talk about warm-ups. So I've seen it two ways. Either the meet organizers or the officials will allow a certain amount of time for throwers to get into the ring or on the runway to take some throws or they will allow a certain number of throws so sometimes for hammer i've seen it for shot and weight as well in championship situations and other meets the throwers will get like two throws once they get in the ring or sometimes the officials will allow 15 or 20 minutes sometimes they'll allow more time if the flights are on the large size And if you're ever unsure of how much warm-up time you're going to be allowed, just ask the official. I think sometimes athletes, especially college and younger, are a little hesitant to speak to the officials, but really the officials are there for you as the competitor, and they're there to make sure that the competition is, number one, safe, and number two, fair. And so they're always going to, they should be there to help you get the best result that you can on that day. Let's talk about... One of my least favorite things that I've seen at some meets, uh, this thing called general warm-ups. I've seen it sometimes where people are less experienced that are running an event or at lower level meets. There'll be this time of like 30 minutes or 20 minutes before we break down to flight-specific warm-ups. It's general warm-ups. Anybody from any flight can get into the ring. In my experience, the better throwers don't use general warm-ups. They just wait until their flight-specific warm-up time uh, has started. And I've seen some inexperienced throwers use general warm-ups and then they take way too many throws by the time it's actually time for them to compete. I would say that the only time when general warm-ups are useful is if you have not gotten a chance to get into the ring before, you know, you're at a new facility and you just want to kind of get in the ring and kind of feel what the surface is like if it's exceptionally rough or smooth and to kind of get your bearings as far as lining up and, and kind of picking out a focal point, for example. So as far as when to warm up, doing your like physical warm up, your jogging and whatnot, I would suggest estimating that each flight will take about 30 minutes. If the flights are especially small, you can estimate that it'll take less time than that. And if they're using a laser measuring device, that should decrease the amount of time that it'll take for the flight to occur. Um, And I would say generally I recommend that my athletes start warming up, like doing their jogging and their drills when the flight before you start throwing. Keep in mind that the number of throwers per flight can vary. So when the flight before you starts throwing. So I usually recommend that my throwers start warming up when the flight before them starts getting their throws measured unless they take an especially long time jogging and and an exception for that too would be javelin. I found that because there's so much running involved in javelin and my javelin throwers tend to take a little bit longer warming up that they will start warming up even before that. Oh, also keep in mind that if there is a minimum mark for the event, that that will decrease the amount of time that flights will take, especially in the early flights. 
So after everybody gets their warm-up throws, the official is going to call all the throwers that are in the flight together for final instructions and questions. So that's a good time. If you do have any questions about, you know, the conditions or anything related to the meet, that's a good time to ask as well. So as far as how many throws you get, the, the most typical thing is that you get three throws in prelims and the top nine throwers go to finals and they get an additional three throws. They should be taken ideally one at a time, allowing time for the thrower to recover between attempts. I have seen some meets sometimes in high school where every thrower will get four throws and there's no finals, but that is less common. More common is a three and three and officials will call throwers up on deck and on hold. The person that's called up is going to be the next one to throw, followed by the person on deck, followed by the person on hold. And often the official will call that up on deck on hold to measure the throw that was just completed and then call the person up again. Different organizations may have different times that are allowed for you to complete the throw. An official that's worth their salt will have a stopwatch and once you are called up the second time they will start the timer and you probably have you know 30 seconds a minute to complete your throw. If you have say a minute to complete your throw when you hit 30 seconds they'll hold up a yellow flag and that doesn't mean that you have a foul or anything it just is to give you a heads up that some of your time has elapsed. And you should know that you can stop and restart your throw and it won't be called a foul. So long as you have initiated your throw within the time limit, you can stop and start over again. So let's talk about officials marking and measuring each throw. So I have seen in some high school meets that officials won't measure each throw. Really, they should measure each one and not use any kind of pins or flags or markers. It's not ideal. So if you're in a, in a conference in high school, for example, where officials are doing that, you may want to just educate your officials and let them know that that's not ideal. When there's a meet where there is a minimum mark, what that means is that every thrower's first legal throw gets measured, and then anything past the minimum mark will be measured. So that's just to kind of speed things along. It's fair to everybody because everybody still gets at least one throw measured, but again, it benefits the more talented throwers. This is where a thrower might need to be strategic with their fouls. So generally, I discourage my throwers from intentionally fouling any throw, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But if there is a minimum mark and your first throw is exceptionally poor for you, you may want to intentionally foul your first throw so that you can get your next one measured. So, and and usually that's only done when it's anticipated that the meet is going to be exceptionally long and it kind of helps just kind of speed things along. Let's talk about finals. So when the prelims are done, those first three three throws for everybody. And what the officials will do is they'll take the best mark of three for all of the throwers and they'll rank their throwers from the best top marks to the lowest marks. And generally the top nine throwers get to take another three attempts. There are some rule changes now with the USATF nationals where um, not all the throwers will get an additional three throws. It has to do with how you're ranked and it's kind of changing things up to kind of keep things a little more interesting. So those top nine throwers will throw in reverse order for finals from the person ranked ninth to the person that is ranked first. Person that's ranked first will throw last. And again, this benefits best thrower because if you're, you know, sitting in first place and everybody else has taken their three throws, you can sit there confidently knowing that you have won the meet already before you have to take your sixth throw. 
So let's talk about tiebreakers. So here's where intentionally fouling might get you into trouble. So when two throwers are tied, when their best marks are exactly the same, the officials will look to their next best throws to break the tie. So when two throwers are tied, where their best throws are exactly the same, officials will look to the next best marks to break the tie. So if thrower A has thrown 15 meters and then two fouls and thrower B has thrown 15 meters and then maybe they have another throw that's nine meters which relatively is pretty terrible and then their third their third throw is a foul thrower B will still win the tiebreaker because their second throw even though it's pretty poor was better than the thrower A's two fouls. Let's talk about protests. Sometimes you'll be in a meet situation where you feel a call was wrong or you find that officials are just not following the rules and this is where a protest would be necessary and called for. So if you have some kind of protest related to a throw that you just took, get a foul called, call, just something happens with a throw you just took, um, ask the official in the field to hold the mark until the issue is resolved. So even even if a throw is called a foul at the circle, the official in the field should still go to the mark and hold the mark. So if you can't get relief from the officials at the event, your coach or the athlete may need to file an official protest with the meet director. And in some cases, you may be able to get to take another throw. Um, and generally, a meet will, well-run meets will have uh, someone in charge of all of the officials to whom the protests will go. Uh, let's talk about etiquette and safety. Generally, as a spectator or a competitor, it's advised to not walk past or stand directly behind the circle within a few feet while the competitor is making an attempt. Although some coaches and guilty as charged here, myself, like do like to stand right behind the ring, but usually that's something that their throwers are accustomed to. But for really any throwing event in the ring, you don't want to stand right behind the circle, very, very close to the thrower, and then you don't want to walk right past it as a competitor is making an attempt. So it is appropriate to applaud or cheer when an athlete is called up or after an attempt is completed. In fact, making some noise can really add to the atmosphere of an event. I found that at some meets, it just is so quiet and it, it is, I don't know, I personally like it when people kind of get excited and, and there's cheering going on. Occasionally, a competitor or a coach will initiate the slow clap, um, and everyone is welcome to participate. The friendly nature of our sport means that often competitors will cheer each other on, so even members of and fans of opposing teams will take part in a slow clap for a competitor, kind of like you might see for one of the jumping events, too. And then that can often add a little adrenaline boost and really you know, add to the, the competitive nature there at the event. So usually helpers will be there to retrieve implements, and generally speaking, competitors should not enter the sector to retrieve implements. So if you're somebody that's organizing meets, you want to make sure that you have some volunteers there to help retrieve the implements. But here's something that's really super important. So no matter who you are, if you're uh, a coach, a spectator, somebody that's helping out with the event, or a thrower competing in the event, you want to make sure you always keep your eyes on the circle or the runway, especially if you are forward of the throwing area or even to the side because occasionally there'll be an errant throw that will go in an area that you're not expecting. Coaches, please encourage your non-throwers that aren't familiar, you know, educate them about the dangers that can be associated with the throwing events. I've seen where discus is on the infield, on the apron. 
I've seen runners walk in front of the cage and just have no idea that there's even an event going on. And, you know, people have gotten injured and, and killed from being struck by implements that uh, on the fly out in the field. And so, you know, usually nothing happens and, and there's no danger, but please, this is this crucially important that people always keep eyes on the circle or on the runway. And to that end, always as a spectator, if you are putting up flagging around the, the area, which would be highly advised when you're setting up for a meet, you know, always give the sector and the throwers more buffer than you think is necessary. And keep in mind that the flagging indicates a minimum distance and it may be necessary to be farther back to be safe. I was at a, a meet uh, just this past weekend and there were some wet conditions. Um, the discus was on the infield and the discs were really skipping across the ground and going outside of the flagging. And there were some people warming up on the infield and doing stretching with their backs to the throwing area because, you know, they're outside the flagging. And so the perception is that they're in a safe zone. And so you want to, you just want to make sure that everybody's always aware of their surroundings. This can really be an issue too indoors where everybody's a little bit closer together. I would ask you coaches, discourage your athletes from laying down around the sector. I've seen, you know, people laying down on the ground, eyes closed, sleeping near the sector. And that to me is actually kind of terrifying because people really have no idea of what could happen. Another safety point is to stay away from the net. The nets give. Hammer wires can break, discs can slip out of hands, and the nets give. And so just make sure you're standing well back. You and officials, spectators, everybody's standing well back. And this is where the flagging can really be beneficial. You can really set up a safe radius around that net. You know, and always be ready to move and just educate your athletes and spectators that the safest place to be is either behind the circle or cage or well down the field. So you have more time to move if an errant throw comes your way. If you're kind of off to the side but in front of the circle or the runway, if something comes your way, you're not going to have as much time to get out of the way. All right, last point. So some rules of the sport that some people are not necessarily aware of. For javelin, the front tip has to land first. If it lands flat, it's usually called a foul, since that means that the grip landed first. In some meets, the officials will be a little bit lenient, but on a high-stakes meet, they can be pretty strict about calling fouls if that javelin lands flat. And the javelin doesn't have to stick into the ground. It just has to land the front tip first. As far as exiting from the circle, you have to exit out the back half. There should be little hash marks on either side at the midpoint. And for javelin, you know, you have to walk out the side behind the foul line. And you really can enter from anywhere. And you do not need to be under control or wait for the official to call mark. You just have to wait for your implement to land. And here's where you may want to double check on the rules with your officials. So if your officials don't know the rules or the governing body has rules you're unfamiliar with, the officials are the ones to ask to make sure that you are following the rules that they are going to be enforcing. Also, know that you can wipe out the circle or ask for it to be swept, and you can throw a towel out and clothing or jewelry can fly out of the circle once you've entered, uh, and it won't be called a foul. Um, You may enter the circle, exit it, and re-enter it so long as your attempt is started within one minute. If that happens, though, you should pause in the circle uh, before attempting your trial. So there you go. Here's all kinds of info on the throwing events at a track meet. So if you have any questions, contact me at throwsgenius.com. There's a contact form there, or you can email me at info at throwsgenius.com. Thanks again so much for listening, and check us out again. 
Thanks for listening to episode two of the Throws Genius podcast with your host, Coach K. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tell your friends and colleagues and go ahead and check out our website at throwsgenius.com. Join us next time for another episode of the Throws Genius podcast. And remember, with the right resources, anyone can become a Throws Genius.